As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello, thank you for tuning in. This is the Zonal Marking Podcast, which is brought to you by The Athletic. I am Ali Maxwell. On the line with me is Michael Cox and one other. Coxie, what have we got in store today? Well, we're going to be chatting about Manchester City after uh, a couple of slightly concerning performances, I think. And uh, obviously Sam Lee is our Manchester City guy and I think is one of our reporters who likes getting stuck into the tactics. So uh, yeah, he's joining us today. As club-specific reporters go, Sam, your job covering Manchester City under Pep Guardiola, probably more so than many of your colleagues, focused on the tactical side of the game, trying to second-guess Pep at times uh, and also trying to analyse his tactics. Welcome to the podcast once again. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. And yeah, I mean, what a futile task that is and for anybody to second-guess and even analyse, to be honest, uh, sometimes in, in my case. But as they once said on The Office, could still be fun though. So yeah, let's let's have a little conversation <laughs> and, and see what we can get to the bottom of. Well, to be honest, researching this piece, I had a great time reading your articles about Pep and Man City and their tactics and obviously that is Coxie's area of expertise as well I I should say before we get into it that the quality of content on site at the moment on the athletic site and app is absolutely exceptional not just these two guys on the podcast today but all of their colleagues um, some incredible work being done on site and if you're not a subscriber it's a good time to sign up because theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking will see you offered an annual subscription of just one pound a month that offer will not last forever so if you're on the fence if you're not a subscriber at the moment do give the athletic a go today now on this episode of the zonal marking pod i'd like to find out what pep is up to what he's trying to do with this manchester city squad this season what challenges he is facing and has faced and whether something good might blossom out of it. And Sam, we're going to get into the individual games in more detail. Three league games so far this season. One win, one draw and one defeat. So here's a nice early touch of the ball to warm you up. What have you made of City's start to the season? Uh, I must admit, from the outside, it doesn't appear to have calmed down some of the anguish perhaps left over and felt after the Champions League defeat to Lyon in August and and of course, last year's slightly disappointing league campaign. Uh, what have you made of their start to the season? Well, yeah, I mean, they've not been great and they haven't answered those questions that I came into the season with. And I think most City fans would have come into the season with either. But I suppose this isn't an ideal answer for a tactical podcast. But I think or one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to work out, probably above all others, is it's just how much the fitness and the match sharpness and the injuries plays into that. Because it's easy for us to say, well, they've not been great and we could, well, we will look in detail at the games. But just trying to work out, you know, if Gabriel Jesus or Aguero had been playing against Leeds or, you know, Phil Foden or Mares had been a bit sharper in certain games. And once that fitness comes back, maybe we'll start to get those answers to the questions that I was, I was talking about earlier on. Um, but yeah, certainly tactically, it's going to be interesting all season and in the games we've seen so far, because in terms of replacing David Silva, that's that's a huge one. Um, in terms of the intensity of the pressing, um, 
you know, whether they use a double pivot um, or just Rodri in defensive midfield just to protect that defence. But now they've obviously got new defenders as well. So there's a load of interesting things, obviously, still to come over the rest of the season. But yeah, um, not a hugely positive start. But I suppose what City fans could say is there is the potential for it to, to get better. Okay, well, Michael, I want to hear from you if you've noticed anything new uh, on the tactical side of things before we delve a bit deeper into a lot of those topics that Sam touched on there. Um, it strikes me that with with managers who are considered very tactically astute, with managers who are kind of pigeonholed as tactical geniuses rather than wonderful man managers and motivators, sometimes they are um, sort of talked about as if their philosophies and their dogmas are very set in stone. They're quite unchangeable but but Pep Guardiola uh, whose Barcelona side of course and their style and tactics is held up as the best club side in, in modern times at the very least has shown himself with City more so than at previous clubs to be actually quite the the tinkerer I don't mean that in a negative sense but he's quite reactive to the opposition on a game-by-game -game basis uh, but also season by season if you track the development so, Coxie, let's pick up on some of those threads that Sam just talked about. Uh, in broad terms, what have you noticed? What are the early signs as to how Pep Guardiola is approaching this season tactically? Well, he's done some different things. I mean, one of the things I was interested in, in, uh, in the Leeds game in particular, and, uh, and also against Leicester, was he's, he's often changed the role of Kevin De Bruyne. Um, and I know De Bruyne has played a variety of positions for City. He's played his kind of classic inside right position. He's played as a number 10. He's played deeper in a two a few times, maybe not under Guardiola, but he has played on the right. But he's been used a little bit more in the inside left role, which I've found intriguing, um, which is a polite way of saying I don't quite understand what the uh, idea of that is. But I think that is maybe the best example of, of, I think, what you're implying, that Guardiola is always trying to evolve how City play. I mean, he was, in my opinion, by miles the best player in the league last year in that inside right role that he played almost as well as anyone I've ever seen. It almost felt like a unique role to him. And yet Guardiola has, has clearly seen something. Um, and in particular in that game against Leeds, he played a completely different way in a completely different position from how he did last season. So yeah, as always, Guardiola is trying to move things forward and uh, he often gets them right. And sometimes, uh, sometimes I'm less convinced and I'm still waiting to be sold on the De Bruyne thing, I must say. Maybe Sam, De Bruyne's differing roles even in what's only been three league games so far this season does kind of sum up um, the, the the state of the squad in general by which I mean the quite important context of injuries that you mentioned earlier and also in, in trying to fill a David Silva shaped hole uh, on the pitch uh, could you just talk me through which injuries have occurred this season what's been holding them back and and, and what we might see uh, happen over the next few weeks when play, players return from injury yeah, so I think I do think one of the big things this season is going to be how they replace David Silva. But yeah, going into that, even if they haven't quite got the the players to do that in terms of their ability, Ilkay Gundogan got diagnosed with COVID on the day of their first game of the season. Bernardo Silva got injured playing for Portugal before the, their season started, I think. So he 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 wasn't he's not really been around. They're two of the midfield options. Foden's been there. He's been doing little things here and there, and you know in those various different roles that Guardiola's asking of him. And then, yeah, up front, both number nines, Jesus and Aguero. Jesus played the first game against Wolves, but got injured in that. Aguero has been out since the end of last season. Laporte had COVID as well, so he he was um, coming back. Stones played at Wolves and then got injured, so he missed the next two Premier League games. So, yeah, it's been a bit all over the shop in in that sense. And effectively, against Wolves in their first game, the only kind of midfield they could actually field was Fernandinho, Rodri and De Bruyne, pretty much. So it was just kind of a way of Guardiola fitting those three into a coherent three. And obviously with the double pivot more and more last season to protect the defence because of just all sorts of reasons. You know, less effective pressing, less intense pressing further up. The midfield was doing more work. Rodri was struggling a bit. So they stuck an extra midfielder in there. It kind of made sense with having more centre-backs available now to put Fernandinho back in the midfield. But it, it, all, it all goes into this idea of, you know, Guardiola's kind of trying to find so many different answers, kind of shuffling his pack really and trying to trying to see what fits. But with Bernardo back and, and Gundogan back soon, there will be more variety in there. But it, it, it's been a bit... It's been difficult because replacing David Silva was never going to be easy. Replacing prime Fernandinho was never going to be easy. He's trying to do that, but without any other 
kind of possible replacements and then kind of i suppose as michael was saying you get de bruyne popping up everywhere because at the end of the day he's the only really creative midfielder they've got the guardiola is going to play in those positions in most games of the season and i'm we'll we'll touch on foden shortly but he's going to be used in midfield too often. We certainly will. Uh, let's have a quick look at the matches so far because uh, they didn't play on opening weekend and then their first game was actually the Monday night of the second weekend of fixtures. So we had to wait quite a long time to see how they would play. And as you touched on, uh, Pep, his hand was kind of forced by the players that he had available or rather unavailable, I, I suppose, really. But it was a delayed start to the season and quite an impressive one. And beating a Wolves side 3-1, a side that had caused them so many problems last season. Things certainly started well. What went so well uh, in that game? The way they were going to replace David Silva, and I'll try and address this briefly, but basically why Guardiola obviously loves Silva First of all, it's because he's quality. But second of all, because the way he uses the ball, he you know he gets it and he gives it. He doesn't hold on for for too long. He doesn't tend to dribble with it. He, you know he can carry it, but he doesn't tend to. Um, it, the opponents um, chasing their tails move, keeps the ball moving. And the only similar player in the squad that can play that role is Gundogan, but he's not quite at the same level of quality. So he's similar in the type, but not in terms of the quality. So when Gundogan's played there instead of Silva. He's not been quite as effective as Silva is because of that quality. And you, you'll get City fans saying, why doesn't Bernardo Silva play there? Because he played so well instead of Kevin De Bruyne a couple of seasons ago. Why doesn't Foden play there? Because, you know, even Guardiola himself has said that Foden is the David Silva heir. They're not the same type of players. They don't use the ball in the same kind of way. They don't give that element of control that Guardiola wants. And that's why they very rarely get used in that David Silva position. And yeah, so without him in the team, you don't get that same control. The fans don't really like Gundogan. I think he's underappreciated, but they don't really like him in that role either. And I will admit he's not quite as effective, like I say. Without those those options, they've really struggled because I think one of the ways they were going to combat that this season was to basically get Rodri Gundogan, De Bruyne and then one of Bernardo or Foden in the same team. So effectively you'd have four midfielders in there instead of three, which again goes to show how how effective Silva was at, uh, at that role of controlling the game and, and creating the, um, the opportunities. So to go back to the Wolves game, Obviously, Gundogan wasn't there, but with Rodri and Fernandinho, you had that solid base of the midfield and they look quite good. You had De Bruyne more on the left, but kind of popping up everywhere. Obviously, just pulling the strings as he normally does. And then Foden was that one who started on the right wing in that kind of Mahrez position, but he would drop in and effectively make it a box in midfield. And that's where they got that extra control. And look, another element of it is maybe Wolves aren't that good. You know, we're not sure from their performances exactly where Wolves are at, but it worked... um, for City in the sense that, yeah, that, that double pivot of Rodri and Fernandinho looked very solid. De Bruyne was as creative as he always is. Foden kind of showed how tactically astute he is and how much ground he covers because he was able to link up with the midfield and still kind of hold his position on the right wing when needed. And yeah, it just that midfield worked, basically. And if Guardiola is going to go with that in some games this season, it was quite promising. But then over future games, you know, it's it's been changed because Leicester and Leeds... Um, bring different things and as you say earlier Ali Guardiola does like to change his his team depending on the opposition probably increasingly so in the last year and that's what we've we've seen since then but yeah I mean I think that was a big reason why um, they look quite solid against Wolves because that midfield setup was was pretty good I mean Michael what Sam said about Wolves and their early performances this season is 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 correct they are uh, as we know them anyway to quite a well-drilled side and a side who uh, pose a bit of a threat on the counter-attack when they have space to play into. And and even if Adama is playing right wing-back rather than right wing, you know, still pretty good attacking players and Jimenez someone who who really can cause a centre-back pairing quite a lot of trouble in that regard. But on this occasion, City's defence looked fairly solid, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, well, it was interesting. The centre-back partnership for this game was John Stones and Nathan Ake. And I would say that's a centre-back partnership that's probably been chosen, one, because they're very good on the ball against a side who tend to drop off and sit deep, and two, they're speedy enough to deal with Wolves' counter-attacks. And I think it's interesting when you look at the centre-back partnerships Guardiola has used over the last year or so. I mean, away at Crystal Palace last year, he used Rodri and Fernandinho, who are two holding midfielders, really, because he knew it was a similar situation, but presumably didn't feel quite so strongly about the speed of the opposition. I can't remember who was up front for Palace that that day. Might have been Benteke, in which case you don't need pace. So yeah, I mean, even at centre-back, which is the area where I think most managers would think 
let's keep that consistent and we can change stuff around that. Guardiola is, is you know, taking each game as it comes, to use an expression, um, and treating every game tactically. So, yeah, he's uh, maybe more flexible than ever. Let's move to the Leicester City game. One of now quite a few games, even in this early Premier League campaign, that really did surprise, that really caught the eye in, in, in terms of the scoreline, if not in terms of the way that Manchester City were cut open. It was the first time a Pep Guardiola side had ever conceded five goals. But Sam, when they were knocked out of the, the Champions League by Leon not that long ago, De Bruyne declared it different year, same stuff. Given the way that City were sliced open by Leicester City in this game, this did feel quite new year, same stuff, but on steroids this time. It was it was absolute carnage. Yeah, it was. And yeah, that's that's the quote that kind of sprang to my mind when I had to, to write about the game. It was just, yeah, the, just the usual stuff of like a lot of City's problems last season, like, like I mentioned with Rodri needing help. Um, I think they didn't, well, they signed him expecting him to struggle a bit with um, transitions and knowing when to when to close or when to try and make a tackle and when to hold his position and that kind of stuff. But effectively, he's had to do it much more than they ever expected. And he still is. But some of that would just be because City would just like lose the ball quite kind of innocently through no real fault of their own. The opposition might win the ball back quite well. But then all of a sudden, that turns around and they're in on the defence. And yeah, that happened quite a bit against Leicester. I, can't, I mean, I can't even remember which 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 goals that happened for now it was definitely this the second one for the penalty because city had quite a decent break uh, i think justin won the ball back quite well for Mares, but then all of a sudden like three or four City players were ahead of the ball. They've had other issues where, like I said earlier, prime, trying to replace Prime Fernandinho. Uh, the insinuation there is he's not really Prime at the moment. Um, in that Leicester game, he got taken off at one all, in fact. You know, I've talked about this on City podcasts, but Guardiola hardly ever makes subs that change kind of the structure of his team. You know, he might make a like-for-like like sub. He might not actually make any because even if they're losing, he might actually be happy enough that his team aren't conceding any counter-attacks and he, he might think, a, you know, a goal is around the corner. But at one all, he took off Fernandinho because he was he was that bad. And, you know, um, I think it was a Marty maybe skipped past Fernandinho very easily um, for the first goal. So, as well, again, it's not strictly tactics, but you've just got players not necessarily doing their jobs. So in that sense, it was definitely, you know, New Year, same stuff. Just the transitions and their inability to deal with a team turning them around and getting at them. But also, you know, Leicester's wing-backs were used really effectively and Schmeichel kept hitting long balls up to them and finding them in space. And that's partly why, you know, he gave away three penalties because I think three times there was a, a runner behind the defender and they didn't really... The defenders didn't really know where they were, discombobulated certainly for the first and third penalties by the the runs from the uh, from Leicester's Leicester City's wing backs getting forward. So it was yeah, like you say, it was it was chaos. And I know a lot of people were surprised by by the result. And yeah, I mean you wouldn't be expecting a top team like City and a top Guardiola team to be conceding five goals. But in terms of the way the goals were constructed, and I suppose the fact that maybe a result like that has been in the post for a while. I mean, it wasn't as huge a shock to me as it was when, for example, I saw Sid Lowe tweet later on the Sunday night, wow, I've just seen the City score, what on earth happened there? It's like, that. it did feel like it had been coming. And and the fact that Leicester changed their approach, Brendan Rodgers, the famously attacking coach, decided he was basically just going to sit off and then let his technical players pick through City when they tried to counter-press, goes to show, really, that a lot of managers are thinking, hmm, you know, we might be able to get a city. Yeah, I must admit, as soon as I said the word carnage and, and chaos, I suddenly felt a little bad because, as you've mentioned there, Brendan Rodgers afterwards was was fairly pleased with himself. And you might say that that's kind of always the case, but specifically when talking about his, his tactics and the way in which he changed Leicester's general style of play in order to, to beat Manchester City and beat them well. And so maybe it's wrong to call it carnage and chaos because it, it, it's a targeted approach from an opposition manager and one that we've seen tried uh, to to varying levels of success in the last year or two. And, and I dare say we will see plenty more over the next few weeks and, and months. Michael, I'm going to ask you quite a, a tricky question now, but given, given we often talk about the same issues for Manchester City and specifically in defensive transitions in having too many men in front of the ball and or the you know the, the the press from the front not being good enough and and once the the press is bypassed the first time the deck of cards kind of falling to the floor my mind sadly is turned to the champions 
Liverpool and I completely understand that they don't play exactly the same style of football but these are two teams that dominate possession generally that um, do commit plenty of men forward and yet Liverpool don't seem to have the same problems as Manchester City. Could you try and explain that to me uh, to what extent this is a a personnel uh, situation where Liverpool's players are just better suited than than City's players whether that's in midfield or defence or dare I say it the the three starting the press up top is it a, a, a case of being better coached to play uh, in this style of play, not just in possession, but to cope with what the opposition might do as well. Because uh, am I being crazy here? It feels like while Liverpool aren't perfect either, as we saw against Aston Villa, they don't seem to have this same continuous issue that, that City do. Well, I agree it's not continuous, but I would say that if you if you do look at the Liverpool games so far this season, I think they've conceded 11 goals in, in four games. And I did an article a couple of weeks ago looking back at those concessions. And there were quite a few goals where... This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. It probably stemmed from the opposition holding midfield and not being pressed to the extent that you would expect for a Liverpool side. But I agree that to a certain extent it's been more of a problem for City. I mean, it certainly wasn't that Leicester game. Against Leeds, I thought actually they pressed very well in the opening stages. They put Calvin Phillips under a lot of pressure and De Bruyne was instrumental in that, I think as good as I've ever seen him impressing high up the pitch. But I would say I would say against Leeds, maybe the problems were slightly more with the ball. I thought they were quite predictable. But yeah, I mean, you're right. The, the pressing, I think Guardiola and Klopp as well, they, they use a style of football that is risky in terms of the, the defensive line. And to play that way, you do need constant intensity. And I do think sides are struggling to play with intensity on a consistent basis throughout the first few weeks of the season, whether that's because of the crowds, whether that's because of... Uh, the unusual preseason. We we spoke a little bit about this last week, but you're right that it's you know City haven't been particularly impressive without the ball so far. Now we've had a, a win and a defeat so far heading into the Leeds game, which I think we could probably have done a whole separate podcast about, especially with our listener base and this being quite relevant to their interests. I dare say um, Guardiola against Bielsa for the first time in English football. Of course, Michael, we've actually referenced this on the podcast previously with Dermot Corrigan that the Athletic Bilbao versus Barcelona in 2011 the first time these managers and friends came up against each other that's held up as as one of the great sort of single matches for a football uh, football purist and specifically those interested in tactics and tactical coaches um English football's first experience of Guardiola versus Bielsa didn't really disappoint either no it didn't certainly not from a neutral's perspective it was end to end it was one of those games that you don't know whether to say a little bit like you did earlier you don't know whether to say it was very chaotic or whether it's very structured because of the, the manager's instructions but certainly it was a game that was influenced by the way that Bielsa's side played I mean personally I came out of this game feeling quite negative about City I mean this was the kind of game that they like it was open it was end to end it was you know lots of space in midfield with all due respect to Leeds I'm not sure they would have any players who get into the City starting 11 and yet at the end of it Leeds were probably the better side they probably had well they definitely had more chances to win the game and the the thing I focused on was I was just really surprised with the way City played going forwards I mean you look at the stats from this they had 23 shots compared to Leeds 12 but the XG Leeds won it 2.6 to 1.4 so that just says that City were having lots of shots from very unthreatening positions and you know from where I was uh, watching it just seemed like they were only attacking in one way which was using wide midfielders or wingers if you if you prefer that phrase coming inside and shooting and with De Bruyne to the left and, and Foden to the right also coming inside onto their stronger foot it felt again like they were you know they weren't really trying to play through the opposition they certainly weren't going around the opposition they were just getting to a point on the edge of the box and taking almost pot shots and that just seems so far from the way that city played in, in the two title winning campaigns under guardiola where they scored so many open goals i mean i, I remember doing an article at the time just i'd never seen a side who who created so many you know 0.9 xg chances just unmissable open goals and i thought I, yeah i kind of understand why guardiola would want to play that way against 
Leeds because they use this man marking system in midfield. They do get themselves in situations, Leeds, where they have men ahead of the ball and no one protecting the defence. So I, I understand why he might have thought, yeah, this is a game for, for shots from range. But surely not to that extent. I mean, you know, it seemed really quite one-dimensional to me, which is certainly not the phrase you would you would generally use of a Guardiola side. Yeah, the, the interesting thing about this game as well is, again, in terms of the pressing, and I'm just thinking now, because the Real Madrid game, when City beat Real Madrid at the Etihad in August, the pressing was fantastic. Obviously, they forced those errors from Madrid. It's like this team is set up better to, to play against teams that play football against City. Obviously, Real Madrid were always going to try and play their own game. Leeds, of course, were going to try and play out from the back as well, but also put pressure on City. And, you know, when I mention players like Gundogan, obviously he's not featured so far this season, didn't play against Leeds. But when I mention players like Gundogan, I almost think he's more comfortable being pressed and being put under pressure. And he can easily turn the ball around the corner to somebody else. And then they can, City can move up the pitch quite quickly. I think when the teams sit off City, like Leicester did, they struggle a bit more and they've they've got players capable of making these passes, but then they're not pulling the teams around quite so quickly. Still, that doesn't explain the issue against Leeds. Like I say, back at the start, maybe it's just a pure fitness thing. You know, maybe if Mares, you know, Fer- Ferran Torres started the game, you know, he, he might need time to, to settle into to the league and to, to the club. Um, Mares not particularly fresh. And Foden, interestingly, he played in one of those number eight positions, but this is one of the very, very few games where Guardiola knows they're not going to be able to have that control or even you wouldn't want that control. There's no point in using the ball and having somebody, you know, keep the, the play ticking over in midfield because there's there's almost, you know, no midfield to keep ticking over. As Michael said, there's spaces to burst into. So you play a midfielder there who's very good at bursting into those spaces. So you put a Foden on instead of a player like Gundogan or David Silva and he could take advantage in that sense. So that's an interesting one in terms of, as far as Foden's concerned, but it still doesn't really answer the question like Michael says in terms of that lack of cutting edge and creating real, real opportunities. Some of the ones they they created early on. Like Torres had one kind of blocked off the line. That was after City had pressed really well because what they were doing, they were forcing Meslier, the, the goalkeeper, to kind of go with diagonal balls out to the flanks, which Edison likes to do as well. They were ready for them and De Bruyne was was kind of ready to, you know, they were setting those traps. De Bruyne was going and winning the ball. Foden was going and winning the ball. They were stopping Calvin Phillips getting on it at all. And that's how Torres got that chance. But they weren't doing an awful lot with that. And I don't know, the fact that City cut inside so much I know Michael wrote a piece about this earlier in the week I, I do think the fullbacks particularly the left back position has had a, a you know a big a big say on that because I think teams not necessarily leads but teams they're set up in the box they might even have 10 men back in the box they're confident none of the City players are going to win headers and they see whether it's Mendy or Zinchenko or even Angelino who's got a better cross on him than, than any of them but is now on loan I think they just see them and they go well put it in the box mate and we'll just head it clear and I do think that's part of City's issue as well like generally and I think it will be one um, going across the season given they didn't buy a new left back I mean it's interesting isn't it Michael it's it's not a new problem for, for Pep Guardiola and City uh, by which I mean teams defending in a low block defending very narrow denying them you know easy and obvious passes through the middle and, and ultimately the compromise being okay cross the ball in and, and score that way and, and fair play and they've succeeded in those conditions previously they've won titles in those conditions and you know in that piece that you've written you kind of pointed out that the way that they scored goals was very different back then to how they're trying to score goals now. You actually highlighted Raheem Sterling and and which side of the pitch he is playing on now compared to previous seasons as being a quite a good descriptor here. And I dare say what Sam has said as well about the fullbacks plays a part as well. But just talk to me about Sterling and his role in the side. Yeah, last season he played almost exclusively from the left flank and got 20 goals, but only one assist. The season before that, it was balanced left and right pretty much those roles equally. Uh, he only scored 17 goals compared to the 20, but he got 10 assists. The season before that, he was generally on the right, uh, and it was a very similar record. So he, I gather he prefers playing on the left because he, he likes coming inside to shoot, and he's certainly, I think, more prolific from that side. But once again, I mean, it's not just about individual players scoring goals. He was so good on the right because he was creating almost unmissable chances for usually Aguero and uh, and sometimes Sané at the back post. Sané is a player who I've rated him more since he's been absent from the side, whether through injury or through, you know, he was out of the side because he was going to get transferred. Now he has transferred. 
And I just think his drive and his directness and he played quite a simple game center. He stayed wide left. He got passes often from De Bruyne cold, uh, cold through the defense and smashed the ball across the, the face of goal. But it was so effective. And I think he brought out the best in others. And to me, they seem to have lost that kind of directness and that speed and that incision. And yeah, there's nothing against Sterling individually, who clearly has adapted very well to playing on the left. But it is, for me, a, a very different uh, type of wing play. Yeah, I've started to appreciate Tom Warville more, actually, since he's been out of the side. <laughs> um, you know, he plays a simple role, mainly data analysis and, and data wrinkles, but he does it very effectively and he, and he brings out the best in others. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see uh, how the pod improves if and when he's back. Um, let's rattle through the squad quickly and just remember. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> just just remind ourselves of what Pep's got to work with here. Of course, many of the names mentioned already, um, but uh, I, I was interested to, to read, Sam, you wrote pre-season um, that really before the start of this campaign, I think all of the athletic writers were asked to put forward their sort of starting 11 for the club that they cover uh, as the season began. And you made the point that certainly with City and last season, there really were only four guaranteed starters for big games. I think that was Edison, Laporte, De Bruyne and Sterling. Again, to compare it to Liverpool, sorry, City fans, you know, that side for the most part, kind of picks itself so it is kind of an interesting difference between the two sides is that still the case I mean we're only three or four games in aren't we but do you think there are any others who have stepped up to the plate and, and made themselves you know undroppable guaranteed starters out uh, aside from those four well I mean first thing I should say is yeah I, I wrote that and then I saw it being promoted when I was on holiday like and Kyle Walker wasn't included I was like have I made a mistake has somebody else made the mistake but I mean yeah Kyle Walker definitely is one um you would say is a, a guaranteed starter in these games like so Walker for sure, make it five guaranteed starters. But beyond that, has anybody has anybody added to that list? No, certainly not. And like not in this, you know, early period of the season. You could argue that Ruben Diaz is probably going to be the first choice right sided centre back. Um but I mean we've only seen him in one game. And you know, if he if he were to struggle and he will get a lot of exposure, he will be facing up a, a winger or a forward, you know, like Harvey Barnes. Uh, in that Leicester game, had he played, he will be facing that scenario quite a lot this season. I would expect. So you know he's gonna he's gonna have a tough time. But he, you know he's he started off promisingly against Leeds, and I saw him against France the other night, and he looked very good there too um, for Portugal. So he's a potential one. But I mean, no left back. It's it's always a toss of a coin between Mendy and Zinchenko, and I'm not really convinced by either. I think I'd rather play Zinchenko if you're going to have a a winger cutting inside in Sterling. Then that, it doesn't really match up. Defensive midfield, I'd prefer Gundogan to Rodri personally, but um, there's no guaranteed starter there. Um, and again, there's there's no David Silva now, so even when he was still here last season, he didn't play in the big games, by and large. Um, so if there's going to be a double pivot, I wouldn't even know if it would be Fernandinho and someone else or Rodri and Gundogan. It's, it's, it's hard to know. Up front, it's been the same since Gabriel Jesus came. I would pretty much always play Aguero, but if they were playing Real Madrid tomorrow or even Burnley tomorrow, you wouldn't know which one was going to start if they were both fit. And on the right wing, again, it's all pretty much always been a toss-up between Mahrez and Bernardo, and now you've got Foden in the equation as well. So, obviously, these it's not necessarily a bad thing that they've only got these five because they do have a lot of variety there. And like I said, I've just mentioned another six or seven quality players who can come in and make a very good eleven. So it's not necessarily a problem. But like I say, you compare them to Liverpool and what I always like to do to not bring it back to Liverpool all the time is kind of compare it to City in recent seasons and I'm just trying to think back to a couple of years um, it still would have been Edison Walker Laporte as well but the midfield would have been Fernandinho David Silva and Kevin De Bruyne every day and I suppose in the towards the end of the 2018-19 season even though Bernardo did play a lot instead of instead of De Bruyne, you would have him as a guaranteed starter, whether he was in the midfield instead of De Bruyne, who was injured, or on the right wing. Bernardo would have been there. So even so, yeah, City, just a couple of years ago in that 18-19 season, they probably would have had seven or eight guaranteed starters as well. So it is, it is a bit of a concern, but they do have a big enough squad, you know, enough quality. And, you know, in Guardiola, they, they really should have enough to mm. get by. And by get by, I mean challenge for the title. I mean, yeah, I don't think anyone's getting the violins out uh, when it comes to, no. to squad depth. I just think it's quite interesting to to work out the, the different ways that he likes to put players together and, and which ones seem to work and which ones so far aren't quite working, where the side 
doesn't seem to be um, performing so well. Of course, we're holding them to the highest standards as well because this is a manager and a team that have been champions of the Premier League and and, and therefore that those are the standards that we, we hold them to. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you, Michael, about Kyle Walker. I mean, it's less of a question, more of a statement from me that I'd like your reaction to. I think Walker is really underrated, which is an unusual thing to say about someone who plays for England and one of the, the best teams in the country. But it feels like over the last few years, especially playing under Guardiola, he's, he's become a, a fantastic right back, a really, really good player. Of course, his pace was, was always there, but just his all-round game. Uh, are you on the Kyle Walker love train or, or am I on my own here? I admire the way that he's kind of changed his game. I mean, at Spurs, I thought of him just as a speed merchant, always overlapping, decent delivery, OK defender. I think under Guardiola, he has, he's had to become a more intelligent player, often has been drifting inside in, into the midfield or, or, you know, particularly with England has played as a, a right-sided centre-back in a three, did so at the World Cup. And fair play to him because he's, he's worked his way back into the England side after a couple of squads where I think he was out of the picture. I must say he's one of those players who just when I think he's quite solid, he tends to go and make a mistake. <laughs> I think he's... I think he's quite bad at defending crosses from the opposite flank. Seems to kind of just go to sleep a bit. I mean, this is probably one uh, for Sam rather than me, but uh, that, that's my impression of him. He's, he doesn't go long without a mistake, I would say. I, I don't think he's ever been error-prone as such, but he's for me, he's always been slightly short of being a, a top-class player. Yeah, I mean, I think Gary Neville's actually said a couple of times recently in commentary, I think one City game and one England game, from when Neville worked with him with England, he said our Walker would often switch off um, when the ball's on the other side of the pitch. But I, yeah, I mean, I do think he's, he's definitely one of the more reliable members of the City defence, and I don't mean that to be damning with faint praise. With City spending recently on the on the defence in particular, there's been a, you know a lot of focus on the centre-backs. I mean, there should be even more focus on the left-backs, really. They were unlucky with Mendy because he got two serious injuries, so you can't really legislate for that, but they've been chasing their tail with that. So they're very fortunate that Walker has been so reliable, and I mean, Guardiola loves him. There have been times when he's not been so reliable. Again, that 18-19 season, I think it was, it was pretty poor over Christmas and into the new year, but he just kept playing him. And to be fair, he, he played himself back into form. And yeah, I mean, the, the burst of speed that he's still got, he doesn't, you know, he's not that classic overlapping fullback. And I think, I do think part of him wishes he was. Um, because if he'd been played, I think in the 2018 World Cup, you know, he saw Kieran Trippier doing his thing on the right. And I think he was thinking, you know, that, that could have been me. But I mean, to his credit, he has, he has learned that more central role. Um, we're talking about City protecting their defenders as well, you know, with fullbacks coming inside, Walker's very good at doing that job. So he's added that kind of flexibility to his game as well. And, I mean, Laporte is is quick enough once he, get, once he gets going. But if anything happens to to Walker, that is going to be a very slow defence. Because, you know, when, when, they're, when they're covering for set pieces or just anything... Walker's always there because he can just, you know, he can just dart in behind and clear it up. But if anything happens to him, that is going to be something that um, they'll miss as well because he's the fastest player in the in any kind of defensive position by far. And especially when you've got like, you know, Fernandinho at his age now, I think 34, maybe 35. Rodri's not especially quick. You know, Gund Gundogan's very quick at using the ball, but not so quick without it. Yeah, he's, he's just really, really important for City. And whether he's, you know, top, top level or not, I'm not sure, but... You know, he's he's been fundamental for the City team, to be honest. Maybe that's why he stands out for me, because when City are defending transitions, he is literally moving three times as fast as any of his teammates. And that is that is quite noticeable, I think. Uh, a tactical question, and with regards to Walker and his role at right back, we've talked about the left side and how with Sterling playing off the left, you know, you're looking for a Mendy probably to overlap and uh, probably the, the best at delivering balls into the box out of their um, group of, of, of left-sided defenders defensive players and on the right hand side even though all of the right-sided players that I can think of basically Mares, Bernardo Silva, Foden as well as the push they're all lefties who instinctively cut inside and, and drive inside and take those shots having cut inside as Michael referred to but as you've said and as I think we've all recognized Walker as the right back is not 
bombing on. He doesn't really overlap. He very rarely gets to the byline to, to produce low crosses or any or any type of delivery. Um, could you remind me why that is? Why Pep's system is such that uh, on the left side, he might want someone really bombing on. But on the right side with Walker, he tends to want them moving inside and providing uh, a bit more meat on the bones, I guess, uh, in the centre of the pitch when the team is in possession. Well, I mean, I could probably tell you why why that was the logic before I mean, but to now to be honest given the makeup of the squad it would probably make more sense to have him or Cancelo providing the width on the right hand side and have Zinchenko at left back going in and providing that shield so I mean the the basic idea is City always want to be defending with with five um, and however they they do that it, it normally involves well right at the start it involved two fullbacks going in a bit like Guardiola did at Bayern but generally just the the one, and I think maybe part of it was was Walker's pace, um, but that was easier because when the other one was Mendy, and Mendy was bombing on, and you know, if Walker's good going forward, Mendy was even better, and you know, he he could have got, you know, talk about De Bruyne equal in the assist record last season. Mendy could have been up towards those numbers if he'd have stayed fit in either of his first two seasons when City had won the title. So it it made sense then for Walker to provide that extra solidity in midfield to go in alongside the defensive midfielder ahead of the the centre-backs and, and just kind of provide that shield, um, that extra body there, stop the counters before they even happen. But if they do happen, he, he's got the pace. So that's the idea. But yeah, like I say now, I suppose again, it's the pace element. But for me, it would probably make sense if you put Zinchenko in there because... For start, he plays kind of defensive midfield, holding midfield for for Ukraine anyway. He's he's shown he's good in that position, but you could still actually get a bit of width in the team with Walker. But with with Sterling cutting inside, to be fair, you do actually still need somebody creating that width on the on the left, and it is going to be Sterling cutting inside because City, although they replace Sane with Ferran Torres, it's not actually a Sane replacement because Torres is right footed, and even if he did play on the left, which he's not comfortable with. It cut inside anyway. So it's weird. Like the makeup of the squad now doesn't really match up to all the stuff that Guardiola used to do. And it's fine to move away from something and evolve. But I mean, call me a doubter, I suppose. And I wouldn't, you know, I certainly wouldn't put money on Guardiola not finding the answers. He he could definitely come up with something and City have a great season. But it just, you know, there's a lot of pieces, high quality pieces in that team. But they don't always seem to to fit together. And certainly in the way that that 4-3-3, you know, that rough shape that they won their titles with, I can't really see that being replicated. So yeah, it's interesting that you ask about Walker's role in the team because yeah, there's just so many roles now, especially like with, you know, they, like I say, they've got two defensive midfielders now anyway. So yeah, it, it's it's a strange one and they're going to, you know, they've got enough quality players in there. They're going to have to find some, some new solutions. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, I think we've got a pretty good idea of what's happened so far this season in the three league games. Uh, we've understood the challenges that, that Pep is facing, some of them of his own making, some of them very much not of his own making. Um, I, I want to finish with some sort of bigger picture stuff. Pep is such a fascinating subject for us to talk about on this podcast, and given our, our own interests, that I kind of just want to make the most of it before we, we move on and, and talk about other things in future weeks. It might be a while until we talk about Pep City again. Um, Michael, in another of Sam's pieces, as you can tell, I really did do my research today. Uh, he wrote that one man's game plan is another man's overthinking. And that really, stu- that really stuck with me here, I must admit. It, it must be kind of tough, I guess, for both of you, uh, when covering Guardiola's Man City, not to react purely to the result of the match. Um, it, it feels like with Pep, the case is generally 
praise his game plan when they win, certainly when they win trophies, when things are going well, uh, and and criticise him for overthinking when they don't win, when his plans backfire. Um, and, you know, based on what I think I know about him being very process-driven, more so than, than results-driven, I can imagine that, that can frustrate him, but it is also part of the media's job. That defeat against Leon was so disappointing. Last season's league performance, really poor, ultimately, and, and the start to this season not great either uh, do you feel like for for pep and for english football and for dare i say it his legacy this is an absolutely crucial season into how we will look back on on guardiola's time in england in the future yeah probably and i think also because it's clear that you know this isn't a new thing to say but he does seem to become quite exhausted of of football after a while and i think another stressful season where city don't win the league might be uh might be very difficult for him. I don't know if this is this answers your question, but I would be concerned about the the defeat to Leon and the def- and the sorry the draw against Leeds because the way that Guardiola likes his sides to play, there are certain issues. You know, they can they can have games like the Leicester game, for example. I don't think in isolation that's bad. You can say, okay, maybe he should learn his lessons and adapt. But I think to a certain extent he does. But what I think the Leon game and the Leeds game show is maybe some slightly new problems creeping in. The, the Lyon game, I just thought City were, were very negative. I thought they played almost a back five and two holding midfielders. And I just don't think that's the kind of thing I associate with Guardiola. And I think they, yeah, I, I think they were guilty of not being attacking enough, which you don't usually say about Manchester City. And the Leeds game, again, because it's the kind of game that I would expect City to absolutely thrive in those conditions. And they didn't. So, yeah, there just seemed to me to be some new problems creeping in. It's not just the established things that you almost have to accept if you want the good things that come with Guardiola. It does seem to be some slight new issues. And I think as well, what Sam said about David Silva is really important because he was, I mean, for me, he was the key player at City for the vast majority of the last 10 years. And I think that's almost been overlooked. We all know how good he was and how influential he was. But for him to leave, I think not just in the way that they play on the pitch, but just as a kind of symbol of the of the football that City want to play, I think he's a really big loss, a bigger loss to me than Company, um, who a lot of people, you know, they made a lot of his departure when City didn't win the league last year. I think Silva's a huge loss, and I think we've seen in the first few weeks of the season that they haven't really been able to compensate for his absence. Sam, it's always quite weird hearing yourself quoted back to you, but but just to sum things up, uh, you wrote recently, "What are City today? They are a very good side." but the but is in danger of becoming too large to ignore. That was just before the start of the season. But those performances and the results, of course, against Leicester and Leeds haven't sort of reduced the size of that but, uh, for want of a better phrase. Um, Still unavoidable when talking about Pep's Man City. And and as your job is talking and writing and reporting on Pep's Man City, that is still the elephant in the room here. It's, 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 It's unavoidable. Yeah, well, I mean, as much as it's my job, it's also my nature, and I could go one or two ways with this. I, like I say, I could just say, well, you know, once they've got um, once they've got all their players back fit, um, and you know, top match fitness as well, they'll they'll probably be all right. Um, I'm slightly more pessimistic by nature than that, and a bit more of a a worrier, I suppose. So I'm I'm I may sound a bit more negative, but also I I do think. You know they had they had most of their players apart from Aguero um, throughout the restart, and my thing was heading into the the restart, I was like, well, they had three months off. They probably had a mental break. They've had a physical break. The players can be coming back into it. We're talking June now, and leave their problems behind. And, you know they could obviously not going to win the Premier League, but they could go on and do something quite special in the last few games and and take that into the Champions League. But they kept having those problems anyway, and then they've had five weeks between the Leon game and either the the first weekend of the Premier League season or the Wolves game. But either way, not a huge amount of time, certainly not longer than the three months off they had anyway. So on the one hand, I'm worried in that sense that even when they do have all their players back, they've still got a lot of questions to answer anyway. I do have faith in them in terms of, like I say, the quality of the players and of Guardiola. Um, but we are th- what one of the things I'm thinking of, if they don't, and like I say, they might do, they might turn it around, but if they don't, what I mean by that, they're a, they're a very good side, but is... They obviously are very good. The way they finished second last season kind of shows that. Shows that they were still capable of beating most teams and beating most teams well. You know, they scored more than 100 goals. They got kept the most clean sheets, which you can't do. You can't fluke. But also, it wasn't quite good enough. And not just because Liverpool was so good. Because even if Liverpool hadn't been so good, City still would have been miles behind. And yeah, my thing is, you've got teams like Man United and Chelsea and even Arsenal and Tottenham who they've got 
good players, but they've not been, you know, proper coherent teams for years. They've not challenged for the title for years, but they've generally finished in the top player in the top places just because of the players they've got and that quality. And in football, that's often enough. But the difference between City and now Liverpool has been they've got quality players and the coaching's there as well. My kind of concern for City is they may slip away from that and they may as if Liverpool carry on like they do and I'm not convinced they will because you know all teams have cycles but the issue for, for City might be that they continue being very good but it not be enough and they basically get where they get whether that's second in the Premier League quarterfinals of the Champions League because they've got such quality but they haven't actually quite got the cohesion to go with it to elevate them from an a very good team to, you know, a historic team, which, to be fair, Guardiola City were for those two title-winning seasons, the records they set. Um, obviously, the Barcelona team, arguably the, the greatest team of all time. And Bayern Munich, it's harder to make the case because they didn't win the Champions League, but as a, as a feat of coaching to take those players and to prove that you could do it in a different country, to prove that those players could play in a different way, in a very un-German way, that was a triumph as well. So Guardiola's always had that. But, but yeah, my little concern at the moment is, yeah, they could become a very good team just by virtue of the players they've got rather than the yeah the cohesion between them. Mm. And that's, I don't know, one of Guardiola's biggest challenges maybe this season? Well, I think it's been a fascinating discussion and I think that that will always be the case when talking about Pep Guardiola, but potentially at this junction of his career, more so than ever. I mean, after all that that we've said uh, and, you know, a lot of it is asking questions of Guardiola and of of his players, not just him. I do note that despite a five-point gap between City and Liverpool, with with, uh, City having a game in hand, of course, uh, that the bookmakers still basically can't split them for the title this year. There's still, in City's case, 35 games to go. There's an awfully long way to go in this Premier League season. But I really appreciate your time, guys, because, uh, yeah, it's the sort of topic that I really like to, to get my teeth stuck into. And I hope that, I'm sure, rather, that the listeners will have enjoyed it as well. So thank you to, to Michael Cox. Thank you to Sam Lee for their contributions to this week's Zonal Marking podcast. Just a reminder, guys, that the stuff that those guys are writing is right up there, as you could tell by the fact that I basically just used everything Sam has ever written um, at, to, to form the foundation for my questioning today. Uh, the quality on the athletic site at the moment is fantastic. So uh, it's a good time to sign up if you're not a subscriber. Theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking. You'll find a, a brilliant offer on there. Um, become a subscriber today. And do make sure you're subscribed to this podcast as well. This is available for free on all podcast platforms, but ad free if you're a subscriber to The Athletic site and you listen through the site or the app join us again next week on the zonal marking podcast and thanks so much for listening looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events we've got the spot our partner StubHub has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years providing a 100% guarantee with every order From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.